We're sponsored by the American College of Physicians. They provide 163,000 members with lifelong education, clinical support, practice resources, professional development, networking opportunities, and advocacy. Visit acponline.org forward slash ACP100 to renew or sign up for a membership today. The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash back more hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. Well, hello, Matthew. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Tonight, we're going to be talking about dementia with returning guest, Dr. Josh Wee. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto. Here with me is Dr. Stuart Kent Brigham, who you just heard. And of course, the great Dr. Paul Nelson Williams. Before Paul tells you what it is we do on this show, I wanted to remind everybody that they can claim CME credit for this episode. Any healthcare professional can claim CME for this episode at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. That's made possible by our partnership with VCU Health Continuing Education. And now, Paul, could you tell us what do we do on this show? And then if you could introduce our special guest co-host and uh, and she can introduce the guest. Sure, Matt. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast. We use expert interviews to renew clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge. And with us, we have uh, Emmy, Dr. Emmy Okamoto, who is the producer for this episode and who worked with our fantastic guest to put together a, an amazing episode about the workup and management of dementia. And I'll let uh, Emmy tell us all about Dr. Wee. Yeah, thanks, Paul. So we had a phenomenal conversation with Josh Wee. He is a family physician, a geriatrician, and a nursing home medical director. He has never been more proud of these three titles in his life than this year. He is also a faculty member and the Geriatric Medicine Fellowship Director at the University of Pennsylvania. So tonight, Josh teaches us uh, kind of his quick gestalt of determining dementia types based on their movement, their speed, the age of the onset. He also goes through management and keeping it very simple, sticking to the basics we all know about good diet, exercise, social interactions, taking care of the caregiver, and reminds us to stew in the milieu when we're talking with our patients and the caregiver. So without further ado, let's get into the milieu. Josh, we're so excited to have you back. Can you remind the audience, in case they don't know you, Give them a one-liner about yourself, and then uh, we'll talk some picks of the week. Sure. So uh, I'm a middle-aged Chinese guy that's a fellowship director of geriatrics at the University of Pennsylvania, and um, husband and father of three kids, and have been living the life during this last year. (laughs) Yeah, I'll say. I know you've been in the thick of it. Uh, During this time... Have you come across any books or any kind of media that you wanted to recommend to our audience? Any piece of pop culture that you enjoyed recently or or maybe something more serious? Yeah, I'll tell you, we've spent a lot of time together as a family and we started reading together as a family at bedtime. I have two middle schoolers. We haven't actually read together in a long time. So we started reading um, The Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. We would read a book and then watch the movie and the books are better than the movies, but we absolutely loved it. I'm a big fan of C.S. Lewis. Excellent. Excellent choice. There's We're not going to spend a lot of, of time. copies left of that one. <laughs> What'd you say, sir? So there's an infinite number of copies left of that one. I can't, I, I can't even. <laughs> yeah, we don't, no. we don't need you checking Amazon. Nope. Um, so we're, we're not going to spend a lot of time in this section of the show, but you know, any chance we have to get a pick of the week from Paul Williams, always, always a joy. So Paul, what, <laughs> sure. what are you, what's up these days? So I'm going to recommend it. Thanks for asking. Um, I'm going to recommend the documentary Pretending I'm a Superman, the Tony Hawk video game story, a 2020 documentary about the inception and creation of the the Tony Hawk Pro Skater video game series. So if you grew up during a certain time, meaning the time that I grew up in, um, like skateboarding was sort of aspirational. It was kind of the cool thing to do when you were a kid. And then eventually this, this video game series came out for people who didn't actually have the physical competence or patience for it. And it was a game I was obsessed with. I was incredibly good at it. It was actually a huge part of sort of <laughs> probably my development 
And then this documentary is all about how this game came together, about how it actually impacted the, the skateboarders who took part in it, as well as even some of the bands who were actually in it, too. If, if you happen to care enough to actually watch it, I won't ruin the end of it, but there's a piece of editing that is so perfect, I literally teared up. Um, that sort of summarized the entire sort of uh, overall experience and the importance of the game to everyone who's in it. So it's just, it really, it's a great piece of nostalgia. It's not a masterpiece, but if you grew up in a certain time and came from a certain background, it is a fantastic uh, movie. So the pretending I'm a Superman. Hey, hey, Paul, did you get the remakes for uh, Tony Hawk Pro Skater on? Oh, yeah, 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 of course. They, yeah, they remade also, the first and second one on PS4. I think a prior pick of the week by yours truly, if I'm not mistaken. Hey, audience. Internal medicine is evolving rapidly to meet new healthcare and practice challenges. ACP, the American College of Physicians, keeps you current with the latest clinical information and practice resources to meet those challenges and be fulfilled as a lifelong learner and as an internist. And you can add your voice to ACP's advocacy efforts. You can interact with its global community of 163,000 colleagues and access a wide array of free or discounted member services. I love being a member of ACP, not just because they do great advocacy work, but because they make fantastic educational content. The internal medicine meeting is always a highlight of the year. They have great COVID-19 website, and their POCUS modules are fantastic. If you haven't checked them out, check out their online POCUS modules. It's a great way to get an overview of point-of-care ultrasound. If you're not an ACP member, what are you waiting for? Post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues through May 31st. Visit www.acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS. That's acponline.org forward slash ACP100 and use the code CURBSIDERS to save $100. Join ACP today. So, as I said, we have a big topic. We're going to start it off with a case from Cashlack. Emmy, would you do the honors? Yes. Thank you, Matt. So, Miss Remy Embers is a 79-year-old female retired professor who you've known several years with hyperlipidemia and osteoarthritis. She lives alone, and her daughter, Carrie Guyver, is visiting on the weekends. She usually comes alone and is doing well, but today her daughter corners you between rooms to tell you she has been getting more forgetful. Carrie noticed that her mother barely took her atorvastatin in last month and recently lashed out for stealing her necklace, which they later found in the drawer. Several times she mentions a dog in the fenced-in backyard, though Carrie doesn't believe it. When you enter the room, you ask Miss Embers how things are going and if she noticed any memory changes. She is upset that you ask and accuses her daughter of meddling. So first, Josh, this is quite the case, and, and I'd like you to kind of take us through uh, just the basics and definition. So what what is kind of cognitive impairment, dementia, and how do you kind of classify that? So both cognitive impairment and dementia are umbrella terms. Cognitive impairment being broad can be congenital from birth, can be lifelong. Um, so dementia is an acquired cognitive impairment that's often related to aging. And dementia itself is an umbrella term, meaning that somebody has memory changes or cognitive changes that's enough to impact their function. So you can think about shortness of breath, having a differential, and one type of that might be due to congestive heart failure, but congestive heart failure itself is a syndrome of different subtypes. And so you're really going from one sort of umbrella term to a narrower umbrella term. And then from there, you actually have to get to a diagnosis. Yeah. And we, you know, we were talking about this beforehand, Josh, we've done, we've, we've done some episodes on dementia. It's been a while. So we wanted to refresh ourselves. We wanted to see what someone like yourself is doing these days. I'm sure this is a pretty common thing for you where you get cornered by the family member in the hallway. So like, what, what's your approach for this as you're going to start to delve into how, how are you going to diagnose this, this patient and figure out like which type of dementia they may have? Right. So the first thing I would say that my job as a geriatrician is often to play referee between a patient and the family member. <laughs> and so I have to sort of look at it as a triad visit. I have to listen to the patient. I have to listen to the daughter, take both of them quite seriously and not take sides up front. And so it's called a triad visit 
where I do spend time with each person. What's interesting is when physicians aren't thinking about this specifically, they might just talk to the daughter and not ignore the patient altogether. I've seen that happen where my patients just come to me afterwards really ticked off that some doctor only talked to the daughter. I've seen the flip side where the physician will only talk to the patient, a demented patient in a room and shut the daughter out of the room. I've seen a patient who actually had an IRB consent all to them and the family was left out. So I think you have to come to it with just an open mind that it's your job to explore what's going on. The second thing I notice about this is there's medication management. So financial issues and medication management issues are the two instrumental activities of daily living that are most likely to show up uh, with deficits in cognition. They're the most cognitively taxing IEDLs. Now, what I think is also interesting is that there's this episode of lashing out, which speaks to maybe an emotional component to this, and that's not normal. So normally, when somebody has dementia, they have issues with their cognition, but layering on a mood aspect of it, to me, is an independent variable. It's a separate category of its own, along with possible visual hallucinations or delusions. So a lot of times people mishmash cognitive changes together where they think about memory, language, visual spatial issues, and then mood and psychiatric symptoms. And the reason I separate those two things out is because you can have mild dementia with severe neuropsychiatric symptoms. You can have severe dementia with no neuropsychiatric symptoms. And you have to look at those variables like an X and Y axis because if you overweight one or the other, it can really trick you into misstaging where the person is at. And before we delve into how you determine those things, can I actually ask you to take a step back and just tell me how you frame the triad visit? Like how how do you introduce that, just the way that you're going to structure the visit to the family and, and the patient? Sort of how do, you, how do you organize that so no one gets hurt? So a triad visit is probably one of the most important things I do at a new patient visit. And I often thank the family member for bringing the patient in. Sometimes if I can tell the patient is not the happiest about the situation, I say, you know, they brought you in because they love you. And I say, you know what? I love talking to patients. I love talking to the family members. So I'm going to speak to both of you. And I really want to hear what both of you have to say. I usually do set up a ground rule that the patient is allowed to interrupt the family member, but the family member isn't allowed to interrupt the patient, mm. um, mainly because usually it's the family member who brings it in. So there's already a little bit of a power differential. So yeah, so usually that's what I uh, bring in, or that's, that's how I set up a triad visit. I, I like that. That framing is helpful because I, I have to admit, I, I don't think I'm doing as good of a job as I should at like addressing both the patient and their family member. Um, I think sometimes I'm probably making the mistake that you already, you mentioned right. where I'm either talking mostly to the patient or I'm talking mostly to the family member. And uh, maybe I'll be more well-liked if I take your tact. I, I like this. This is already, you're already helping us. <laughs> I, I just wanted to, to kind of add in, Matt, I, I find that I run the same ways as you where I'm kind of focusing on one or the other and forget to kind of um, have them both communicate together. Um and I think it's a really good idea to basically put the patient in the pilot seat to say, hey, you know, when they're talking, let's let's listen. Let's all kind of back down and listen. And that's a, a common mistake that I think that even I've made when it comes to talking with these patients. So the other thing I'll add about this is when a family member brings in a loved one for a memory valuation, it is often not the happiest visit. <laughs> yeah. And so when I'm communicating, I'm not just communicating communicating facts about memory loss and dementia, I'm also communicating to them how I want them to feel about it, which is not ashamed and not afraid. And so I find that, especially when you're communicating in the setting of memory and cognitive issues, it's not the facts that you're communicating that are important, it's the emotions that you're communicating. You're communicating not just what you want them to know about memory loss, but how you want them to feel about memory loss, which is this is something we can talk about in an open way without being afraid, and we can do things to manage it. So you bring that emotional context to the visit. So one of the things that I find is the most difficult part of this initial visit, and I know that we've had a, an episode about this before, is actually, I always get, the, get this chief complaint 
uh, issues with driving, essentially, or concern with driving. And the whole family comes in with a patient. They're like, oh, no, she's not where he or she is not safe to drive. And that immediately puts the patient on the defense. And then you're just trying to because the way that they interpret it is you're trying to take away my independence. Yeah, it is that. So there's a couple of ways I would frame memory loss. One is, you know, tell me about your memory. Um, do you feel that your memory is not as good as it used to be? which is such a softball, easy question to answer yes to, even if you have normal age-related memory loss, because whose memory is as good as it used to be? And so you make it easy for them to say yes and start engaging this. And you say, well, you know, let's figure out how it's doing. And this would be true for function, for cognition, for independence, for goals. And you're just asking these things in a very open way. And yes, the tension is there in the room, but sort of your job as the physician is to say, you know what, I love dealing with these issues and, you know, I'm glad you're here. Now, we, we, we oftentimes talk about Alzheimer's dementia or vascular dementia. I think Paul wanted to kind of bring this up. How does that differ, at least in the initial presentation for frontal temporal or Louis, Louis body dementia? Yeah. So let me give you sort of my cheat sheet of how I subtype dementia. Everybody gets focused on ANO times one, two, three. Um, probably the first thing I think about is I observe how fast they are. Like how fast do they move and how fast do they speak? Um, and to get that sense of rhythm. So if I watch them walk from the waiting room to my office and I see them walking normally or I see them walking slowly, it gives me a clue. And then when I interact with them, if they're speaking quickly or slowly, that also gives me a clue. So if somebody is speaking quickly, Generally speaking, it's either going to be Alzheimer's or frontal temporal dementia. And if they're speaking and walking slowly, it's going to be either Parkinson's with dementia slash Lewy body dementia or vascular dementia. And so that speed is the first thing that helps me separate out my dementia subtypes. If they're faster and older, it's more likely to be Alzheimer's because older people don't get frontal temporal dementia. If they're faster and younger, it can be 50-50. If it's a slower dementia and they have vascular risk factors, it's probably going to be a vascular dementia, which tends to be a mixed type. And then if they're slower and they have cogwheeling, tremors, or rigidity, then it's either going to be Lewy body dementia or Parkinson's dementia. And the only thing that distinguishes between those two things is whether or not the motor symptoms preceded the memory symptoms by more than a year. So let me give you an example. So one day I was at dinner with my mother and father-in-law, and they had some family friends there. And this guy comes shuffling in with a mass facies and hypophonia and sits down across the table from me. And I'm just observing him. I said, how are things going? How's your health? And um, his wife speaks up because he's not that engaged. And he says, oh, he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia. Now, without doing any cognitive testing, you know right off the bat, this is not going to be a typical Alzheimer's dementia. It seems like Parkinson's. So then the only question is, does he have a history of Parkinson's? So the first time I made a diagnosis of Lewy body dementia on my own, I was first year out of fellowship. I see this patient shuffle in, very similar to this dinner guest. And I say to the wife, I said, well, how long has he had Parkinson's? And the wife goes, he doesn't have Parkinson's. I'm like, well, there you go. He has Lewy body dementia because <laughs> Parkinson's with dementia, you'll know that they had a diagnosis of Parkinson's for years before they developed the memory issues. And so if it came on concurrently, then it's Lewy body dementia. So again, the quick branch in your head is speed, which is something that, again, you have to speak to the patient with dementia to get a sense of speed. If it's fast and they're older, most likely Alzheimer's, fast and they're younger, 50-50 Alzheimer's FTD. If it's slow with AFib, hypertension, diabetes, vascular dementia, and if it's slow with Parkinson-type features, it's either PD or Lewy body dementia. And as a non-neurologist, that gets me in the ballpark. Nobody will <laughs> laugh me out of the room. So the first time I tried diagnosing FTD was in somebody who was like 90. And the the geriatric psychiatrist literally laughed. He goes, nine-year-olds don't get FTD. So mm. that's how I learned that one. What uh, age range do you typically see FTD in? So <laughs> FTD is uh, usually under 65, which is why I don't see it a whole lot. 
So I've got uh, a few patients in my panel. One was late 50s, early 60s when the initial symptoms came on. And by even before 65 was just full-blown uh, disinhibition, um, completely changed personality. Very interesting case, actually. But yeah, the three that I have in my panel are all younger than 65. Can I ask about one more entity, and then, and then I, we should probably actually move on to the case, I suppose. But there's Dr. Uptodate, whom I trust in many things, um, mentions this, this alcohol-related dementia almost as a throwaway, but then they also say it's relatively common, which is funny because there's like three different pages on um, Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease and none on alcohol-related dementia. So is that a thing? And, is that, and how does that sort of typically manifest if it is a thing? So I guess the second question is contingent upon the first. Yeah, I don't know that I would ever diagnose somebody as having only alcohol-related dementia. Um, I can't say I'm an expert on this one, but um, I would. I have had some pretty heavy drinkers who develop dementia, but I feel like they often get diagnosis mixed type. Hey, everybody. You know, on the show, we love talking about our guilt, and one of the things I constantly feel guilty about is I don't know how to cook that well, and I don't do much cooking at home, but our sponsor, Green Chef, makes it easy for even me to make healthy meals for my family. They are the first USDA-certified organic meal kit company, and while we've talked about their vegetarian meals, they make meals that are keto, paleo, vegan, vegetarian, or if you just want to have a balanced, healthy meal, Green Chef really makes it easy. It was a lot of fun for me to be in the kitchen with the kids making these meals, the sep the recipes were very easy to follow, and the food was delicious. So what are you waiting for? Go to greenchef.com forward slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. That's greenchef.com forward slash 90curb and use the code 90curb to get $90 off, including free shipping. And remember that Green Chef is the Number one meal kit for eating well. Josh, I wanted to go back to this to this case. So we've given you Miss Remy Embers and her her Carrie Giver, Carrie <laughs> Givers with her. Very clever names. And we're wondering, I, I know this comes up a lot. Is this is this just like mild cognitive impairment or is this some type of dementia? And what sort of bedside testing, other than talking to the patient, you've given us a lot of some of your physical exam and observation that you do. What, what sort of bedside eval do you like to do? So the distinction between mild cognitive impairment, MCI, and dementia is somewhat of an arbitrary definition from a clinical standpoint, in the sense that it really depends if the change in cognition is enough to impair function. So. I think her name was Pat Summit, who was the head coach of the women's Tennessee's basketball team. She ended up getting diagnosed with dementia while she was still full-time coaching because it affected her cognition. And probably her version of mild dementia is better than me on my best day. Whereas <laughs> other patients where if all they do is sit on a couch and watch TV, they can seem like their function is unchanged for years. And the family's like, no, they're fine. And they're getting an MMSE of 18. So there is an arbitrary nature. I had a patient with mild dementia who was having trouble writing these 30-page grant applications. So there is an arbitrary nature to it. But it, MCI is when you have cognitive changes that don't impair function. Dementia is when your cognitive changes impair your function. MCI is a broad umbrella category that includes all sorts of things that can impair cognition, both things that are degenerative and things that are not degenerative. And yeah, in my understanding, there's a pretty high, above 10% per year will cross over into meeting dementia, you know, a diagnosis because they'll lose function of some sort. That's right. So the neurology guidelines, and to, uh, as of the recording of this, probably Paul will, will come out like next week because we're, because <laughs> yeah, they haven't been updated since 2001. And we actually, Dr. Dukoski, who's been on the show, was, was one of the authors of those. 
and he mentioned that there were some labs that would be reasonable to check. So, what sort of labs do you employ if you're if you're working up? This is this is a pretty this patient. Let's say she hasn't had any testing, and I mean, are you sending like a heavy metal screen on her, or are you just starting a little bit more basic than that? So I stay pretty basic. So if if I get a hint that the patient has a rapidly progressive dementia, or if they're younger, those differentials are fundamentally different, right? So either I'm doing a basic workup on things I'm comfortable assessing, or I decide they need a specialist where you give the specialist a very, very long leash to order tests in a systematic way. Mm-hmm. So as a geriatrician, even though I see dementia, literally every day I see patients, I actually do not touch rapidly progressive dementia. To me, that is a really good reason to see a neurologist. Yes, I can look things up and start ordering tests in a random fashion. But if I want the workup to be done in a systematic fashion in the setting of a framework, that's what the neurologists do. Whether they go to PET scans and EEGs and even to brain biopsies and things like that. So if I'm starting to reach for tests I'm not comfortable with, it should be because there's some feature that I'm seeing that makes me think this is an atypical dementia. Honestly, I'll hand that off. Mm -hmm. So the tests that I order are very, very basic. The other thing to remember is that a dementia evaluation to a geriatrician is part of a comprehensive geriatric assessment. So I will order some basic labs like a CBC, a BMP, a B12, a TSH. I will do a general evaluation because the differential for unintentional weight loss versus falls versus dementia overlaps enough that the geriatrician's response to any sort of these functional declines is a comprehensive geriatric assessment. Mm -hmm. So my assessment isn't going to be just dementia-specific like B12-TSH. It's going to be a broader evaluation. So I will order some basic labs. But if I'm reaching for something... um, like uh, CSF tau protein, oh something right? right. Beta <laughs> amyloid. If if I'm if I'm reaching for something that tells me that I'm seeing something that I'm not quite comfortable with, and they might need a neuropsychology evaluation, a neurology evaluation, etc. Yeah, I find the neuropsych eval is really helpful when you have the patient that's maybe in their like mid fifties or early sixties, and they're having some memory concerns, and you're just not sure if it's if it's a mood disorder or if it's something else, and I, I will often send them to neuropsych in that case. Quirky personalities, I think, also need to go to neuropsychology. <laughs> so if somebody has a personality disorder or they're oh. just a bit odd at baseline, then I think that is also a good reason to do a neuropsychology evaluation. I'm screwed. Stuart. I'm screwed. <laughs> Stuart. I'm screwed. <laughs> I, I send Stuart there when we used to work together. Yeah, all um, the time. Wait, so let me just point this out. There's several domains of cognition, and all of us are biased to overweight one versus the other. So I know that my bias is that if somebody is socially intact, they will come across to me as non-demented. And that has fooled me more times than I can count, where then I do an MMSE and it's like 16. And I think to myself, (laughs) how did I miss this? And so the whole point of a systematic workup is that in our heads, we have certain biases towards different domains, whether it's language, cognition, memory, and if somebody is intact in one area, it can really fool us. And so that's why a more structured exam can be useful. Yeah, which means if I see you on a bad day and I'm not socially intact, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, this guy's demented. <laughs> I'm glad we're mixing in Stuart yeah, know, as right? a parallel patient mm. in this case. Well, if Josh, if you Miss Ember was seeing you and you only had like a 15 minute visit and you weren't expecting this to be brought up. Do you ever do something like a mini cog or just like a three item recall, which I know at least just like as a temporary stopgap measure, you can at least get a sense. Do you ever employ something like that? Or do you bring people back and and do like a mocha? Which which one of those tests do you like, if any? So I usually split my cognitive tests into really short ones that are binary. So things like a mini cog or a clock draw, where the answer is yes or no. Ideally, those are used for asymptomatic people. Now, in this case, she has a complaint of memory loss that the daughter has lodged. And so I would do an assessment test like the MMSE MOCA or the slums. The MOCA is probably best for when the history and physical don't quite match. So by history, they seem intact, but on physical exam, they're not quite right or vice versa. By history, they're not intact. And when you see them, 
you think they're really with it. So the MOCA, the thing I see people do wrong is if you get a MOCA score of eight to 10, you just tortured everybody. You should have, you picked the wrong test because (laughs) that's just really mean. And I know the MMSE is copywritten and I know slums is not and the MOCA needs training. I hate to say, I probably do pull out the MMSE most of the time just because it's quick, it's easy. It's probably best for moderate dementia. Um, because, but, and I think what you're pointing out is that it's MOCA is a hard test. So if hmm. someone has moderate to severe, they're going to do terrible on it and it's painful. MMSE is much easier. So if they have more severe dementias, you're recommending that. So I would do two things. I always get my ADLs and IDLs because it's a functional diagnosis. So I want to know what their activities of daily living are. And then second, I will do probably an MMSC on somebody like this because I can do it in about five minutes. Do you, are you, did you get an MRI or what were you going to say, Stuart? So, I, I, sorry, I, I, I realized I was muted and I asked a question and his answer was actually somewhat appropriate. So I thought I was unmuted. Do you ever use the Addenbrook? I don't. Okay. Reason why I ask it's it's like several pages long. It takes a long time, but it sounds great. <laughs> so not helpful. Well, it, so the reason why I ask is because it has a higher sensitivity and specificity. So you have to be really careful about um, a lot of these cognitive scales, especially when you're interpreting research studies. Okay. Um, about how clinically relevant they are. So the fast scale, which is a functional staging of dementia of Alzheimer's dementia is based off of ADLs and IDLs and is probably the most validated staging instrument for mild, moderate, severe, even better than any cognitive test. So I do live and die by my ADLs and IDLs. I'm getting to imaging studies. Man, I feel like a lot of older adults get a head CT when they go into the emergency room for some reason. So a lot of them already have had head imaging. If I'm going to be sending them to a neurologist that really likes looking at structure, um, and hippocampal size and hippocampal atrophy, and they know what to do with that information, I will order an MRI using the Alzheimer's Disease Center protocol, which looks at um, certain brain structures in a more taking measurements um, of certain brain structures. But honestly, a, head, a non-con head CT, if you're going to order imaging at all, is probably sufficient to look at things like subdurals and strokes and cancers and normal pressure hydrocephalus and big structural things is probably good enough. But a lot of times I don't even order imaging just because the pattern of what I see in front of me seems so routine. Yeah. Okay. Great. Josh, I wanted to go back to our case a little bit and something that you said were sort of the the emotionality that the patient was displaying was not part of dementia necessarily. And and maybe think about sort of also sort of pseudo-dementia that you sometimes see with patients who are older and depressed. And I'm just wondering when you're evaluating patients like this, how do you evaluate mood or sort of for underlying um, mood disorders as part of your workup? Or do you even, do you sort of take that on a case by case? So I guess I'm wondering what your overall framework for the, for the mood component is. Yeah. So the most important thing is even noticing a typical patient with dementia should not have a mood component. They should actually be happy. Um, and so what I notice first and foremost is a lot of physicians don't even notice when a patient with dementia is anxious, depressed, or having psychosis. So on a new patient visit, If I am doing a memory valuation, I will usually pair that with a geriatric depression scale just to keep myself honest. And I will think specifically, are they having trouble with anxiety, Mm. depression, and then either thought content delusions or thought perception hallucinations? And I will ask about mood and psychosis if I'm doing a dementia evaluation because it sort of gives me the X and Y axis for giving me a more complete picture of what's going on with them cognitively. It's it's interesting. So you say that that mood disorders generally don't occur with dementias. What about someone who's more high functioning like that coach, I can't remember her name. Would you expect some degree of de- of depression with a patient like that who is otherwise typically high functioning and has insight to recognize their memory slipping? Oh, so mood disorders are common in dementia sometimes because people perceive it. But a lack of insight is often part of the cognitive deficit. And so the person doesn't appreciate their memory loss. So depression and anxiety and psychosis are common enough. That's why I do check for it. It's just that they're fairly independent in the sense that you can have mild dementia, severe psychiatric symptoms, and vice versa. But they they don't go in lockstep like a lot of people sort of have an impression where they just mishmash it together. I think we have another part of the case here. Emmy, did you want to do the honors? I think this is going to set up. We're going to get into talk about treatment and counseling. 
Definitely. Yeah. So testing for Ms. Remy embers showed no reversible causes in some of the basic lab workup. A CT scan showed mild parenchymal volume loss and small vessel ischemic changes. And for a further neurocognitive testing revealed impaired short-term memory, apathy, and visual hallucinations. She was lost to follow up a few months and returns with her daughter, Carrie Guyver, who has been sleeping over every day after work since the mother left the stove on twice and burned two pots. Her mother is not sleeping well at night and takes long daytime naps. She now has a slight tremor, is walking slowly, and is more withdrawn. So what are you thinking about now in the case we've lost her follow-up? She didn't have a chance kind of for more medications. Um, and where do you take it from here, Josh? Tough case. <laughs> um, I would take one step back and I would just want to make sure that to see if the mood symptoms preceded the dementia or memory symptoms. So I, I had a patient once that came to me with a diagnosis of dementia, but when you sort of went back and reviewed what had been going on with her. The patient was clearly depressed for about six months before they became demented. Now, that can be a prodrome to dementia. So some dementia types like Lewy body can present with psychiatric symptoms first, and I've missed that before too. So sometimes you just want to see if the mood symptoms came first, and really what you're dealing with is depression, just because there's such a large affective component to this case, um, or at least the psychiatric symptoms to it. So at this point, I would say she seems to have a diagnosis of maybe Alzheimer's dementia with depression. The tremor is less specific as you get older. So you can see even unilateral tremors in any type of dementia. And so again, given that that wasn't the presenting symptom, I don't know that it would make as much of a difference in terms of subtyping it. So the most important thing at this point for me is that the patient is safe. And I run through my ADLs and IEDLs and make sure that she has what she needs to be safe on a daily basis. And then I accompany that with assessing the caregiver, making sure she's not burned out. Because it's like a two-hand clap. You just have to make sure that the patient's cared for without burning out the caregiver. Josh, the speaking of the caregiver, something that just came to mind was I... Uh, I came across that there was an, a, a nighttime adult daycare because I knew there was daytime adult daycare, but that in some places there's actually a nighttime adult daycare for patients who are, who are up all night, which I just I just wanted to mention that to the audience. I don't know how available that is. I just thought it was super cool. Um, hopefully COVID will be going away, but uh, in, the, in the current era, it, are adult daycares even open right now? I feel like caregivers must be really struggling. Yeah, that's a great point. They're not open um, and caregivers are definitely struggling and home health aides are intermittently available. So yes, this whole time has been quite challenging for patients with dementia and the families. Um, so yeah, the first thing that I would be concerned about is sort of the caregiving aspects of this, maybe bringing in some home health aid support uh, in the short term and getting the patient on a schedule not because that matters to the patient so much as it just makes the living situation at home more tolerable for everybody else. And it has to be a win-win for everybody. So yeah, that would be the goal is to get the patient on a schedule of sorts and make sure nothing is causing an acute decompensation. Um, in other words, nothing's causing delirium. And the, at the first visit where you, you were doing the triad visit, and I, I think we probably had enough at that first visit to call this a dementia or, or let's say whatever visit you first saw Miss Embers and you thought you had enough to call it a dementia in a triad visit, what would it sound like when you're making giving that diagnosis? Or did you do you use the word dementia or do you use or do you just talk about memory and we're gonna try to support you? So I'll introduce the topic as saying that your memory is not as good as it used to be. And usually people will agree with me on that one. And then I say, well, it's more than age related memory loss, I think you have dementia. And then I'll just pause. And if I don't have the comfort in bringing it up, all I do is add to the discomfort in the room because everybody's already thinking it anyway. And so one thing I've learned to do is to bring up uncomfortable topics like dementia and to do it comfortably. It's better for me to bring it up while everybody's there than for them to go home and think about it on their own. And so I'll bring up the word. I'll show them that I'm not afraid of bringing up that word. And then I'll tell them that the best way, this is getting a little bit into treatment, 
But the best way to manage dementia is to make sure that they live life as fully as possible. And in that sense, nothing changes. That the best things that they can do for themselves the day after a diagnosis with dementia is the same thing that they should have done the day before, which is get a good sleep, good nutrition, good physical, intellectual, social activity. And the best thing they can do for themselves is whatever they enjoy to the fullest extent possible. So I try to give the diagnosis, but then reframe it that life actually can go on. It's we were talking about this in pre-recording, but this the, in the Lancet in 2020, there was I believe it was Livingston et al. They they talked about dementia prevention, which I, I remember hearing a couple years ago that that term was even was controversial to to suggest that you could prevent it. But the the authors of this were suggesting that that you could prevent up to something like 40 percent of cases. Um, just by doing these things, and it's a lot of the stuff that we're just trying to get all our patients to do, which you you just mentioned: live a live an active, healthy lifestyle, be surrounded by people, you know, be social. Um, it's easier said than done in many cases. It is, yeah. So, I, I'm sure that uh, Miss Carrie Giver is going to be interested in, like, you know, we're going to get her set up with home health. We're making sure. Her mother's safe. We're we're putting plans into place and routines. What about medications? Uh, patients they always want to know about medications. What are your What are your thoughts on the common ones, the the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors and the and memantine? Yeah, so that was one of my goals of my Jerry Fellowship is how do you know when to prescribe a cholinesterase inhibitor? And the way I think about it, um, and when. The American College of Physicians actually had a guideline written in 2008, which has since been archived, where they did a fantastic evidence review, which I still think is one of the best evidence reviews um, up to this point. And they showed that after six months of being on a cholinesterase inhibitor, it can improve your, let's say, MMSE by an average of one to two points. And it can improve your neuropsychiatric inventory, which is a research scale of psychiatric symptoms, by about four points out of 100. And then there's a functional scale called the CIBIC Plus, and it can improve it by 0.5 out of 7. And when you look at whether or not these research scales correlate to real-world outcomes, the correlation actually isn't that great. And so the conclusion was that these drugs have proven statistical benefit of minimally clinically important changes. And so that's why I always joke that you know, if somebody's going to eat a hot dog and they're going to choose to eat an organic hot dog, they're not really better off. <laughs> and, um, you know, you have to think about what are the big interventions that actually give real world benefit and what are the ones that give very, very small benefit. The downside to these medications is that they have a number need to harm about of 10 with GI side effects and vagal symptoms. And so they're not risk-free medications. Um, in some trials, up to 50% withdrew due to side effects in the treatment arm. So they have solid harms, quantifiable harms. And the benefits are on these research scales that are really challenging to translate to real-world clinical benefit. That's why a lot of times you start these medications and you think to yourself, I can't tell if anything changed. <laughs> um, and then you stop it and you think, well, it still seems like nothing changed. <laughs> these are not rescue medications. So these are not medications that are meant to be started in the hospital setting. These are medications that exert a mild, gentle benefit that is statistically proven over 60 plus really well done RCTs. So there, there is proven benefit. They are more effective if the person is more symptomatic. So in the same sense that somebody who's pain-free will not benefit from taking pain medications, somebody with no dementia, MCI, will not benefit from taking these medications. So anytime you see a drug study or a drug rep try to talk about pathophysiology of how the medication works, it's because they don't have data. Because <laughs> if they had data, they would just say, you know, we prevented hospitalizations, institutionalizations, caregiver burden. But when they start talking about how memantine prevents cell death, it gives you the implication that these are preventative. But actually, when you look, 
Mamantine is only indicated for moderate to severe dementia. They couldn't get a mild indication, and none of these medications could get an MCI indication. So these are actually not medications that are meant to be started early. They actually are more effective when you're more symptomatic. This is probably a weird question, and we can cut this part out, but has there been... (laughs) Any benefit proven to the caregivers with the initiation of these types of medications? You know, the the word inexorable is used a lot when talking about dementia, and I feel like there's a lot of powerlessness and feeling like helplessness, and so much of that is just desperation to do something to kind of sort of slow things down or help. And so even though there's like the the possible harms of these medications, just the illusion of doing something meaningful might help them somewhat. So I'm just wondering if anyone's actually looked if it helps the caregivers out to any extent, even though it may not be all that helpful for the patients. Yeah. So for FDA approval, you need to do a caregiver rating. Um, and these drugs have benefit on the caregiver rating scale at about 0.5 out of 7. So the question, is that enough to be meaningful, right? If you improve somebody's sleep by seven minutes per night, is that enough to be meaningful? And so that's the challenge of a clinician is we don't think about things in binary. Everything's a continuous variable. And at what point do you say that this is a clinically meaningful change? You know, I think if you have a conflict of interest with a drug company, that definition is going to be a lot smaller than if you're the clinician or the family member, you're going to want to see a much bigger difference. So, you know, I would say if everything else in life is going fine with the patient with dementia, they have enough home health aid support, um, their other medical problems are stable. The family's like, I have money and I don't know what to do with it. And they want to just give an extra medication, you know, then by all means go for it. I mean, there are dozens of studies that show changes in well-done cognitive psychiatric and caregiver scales. But again, it's, I think I said this last time, but if somebody has food insecurity, you know, you're not going to tell them to go to Whole Foods. Like they have bigger issues they need to deal with. So to me, these medications are the icing on the cake. The bigger issues are education for the family is the most likely thing to prevent institutionalization and helping them with support at home. Those are probably the bigger interventions. So I guess uh, before we leave the medication topic, I would just ask Josh: When you start these, do you do you have a trial period, like where you say you're not just going to give a one year supply and not follow up? Do you say, okay, here's sixty days, here's ninety days, let's let's decide at that time if we're going to stop it or continue it? Because as you mentioned, with the cholinesterase inhibitors, GI side effects, pe- people lose weight. The vagal side effects of bradycardia, uh, Dr. Wadera told us that he saw someone get a, a pacemaker because they were on, I think it was donepazil. So what's what kind of leash do you give people when you put them on these meds? So I always explain these medications are not worth tolerating side effects. Um, the second thing is I know for sure, and I'll have to send you the article later, that a serial MMSE will not tell me if the medication is effective or not mm-hmm. because I don't know what their trajectory would have been. And when you see the randomness of how people proceed through memory loss, it's not one point per year. Some people drop five points. Some people will stay stable for a couple of years. Um, That there isn't an MMSE target or a MOCA target where you say this medication Mm -hmm. is working. So to me, it comes down to tolerability. So as long as you tolerate it, go for it. As long as it, you know, if you're hiring a home health aide to make sure the person remembers to take memantine twice a day, that's not worth it. But The other question is, what's their goal of care? If their goal of care is to stay out of a nursing home, for example, and they end up in a nursing home, well, then maybe it's time to stop it. Or if their goal is to be able to remember their spouse's name or to have a relationship with their spouse or to remember a certain hobby. But the question is, what's the goal of care that you're trying to achieve? Nobody says, you know, I just want my MMSE to be as high as it can be. So the question is, what is their goal? So that way you have some sort of stopping point. So one stopping point is side effects. The another would be when it can no longer meet their goal of care. And if if somebody, if you stop it, or have you had this happen, where you stop the medicine and the person falls off a cliff? I know that was the worry. And so what, what's your tack there? Have you seen it happen? And if it did happen, what what would you do? So it happened to me once that I can think of where I stopped a medication, the person tanked and I restarted it and they acquired their previous cognitive function. And this was the same patient where I had done MMSEs on her for about 18 months and they were in the mid-teens and I started her on Dinepazel and it went up to like 25. And this is like the one patient that actually saw an effect from these medications. Usually what happens is 
you start the med, you can't tell. You stop the med, you can't tell. Right. There was just a Cochrane review that came out in February of this year that talked about discontinuation of these medications. And it basically said that if you stop these medications, there's a measurable decline in function of these really small numbers. And so to me, it actually proves that these numbers are small enough that you wouldn't notice. So even though the conclusion was that stopping medications causes a cognitive decline, when you look at the magnitude of that decline overall, the entire scale, the research scale, yeah. it actually confirmed to me that nobody would actually notice. Right. So it's a statistical difference, but not a minimal it probably didn't meet the minimal clinically important difference on that scale, which we see a lot when we're looking, evaluating trials. So it is a little bit of an old wives' tale or a myth that if you stop the medication, you're going to see the sudden irreversible decline in cognition and you're going to regret it. And it it's just one of those myths that keeps people prescribing medications with side effects longer than they should. Uh, Josh, I wanted to ask you... We did an episode with a geriatric psychiatrist, Dr. Popio, and we were we were talking about the antipsychotic medications and some of the behaviors. And his point was probably he sees a lot of challenging cases. He says in the real world, a lot of the behavioral interventions, even though that's like the gold standard, what you, what you should always try first, they just don't work. And if you're trying to keep someone in the home, sometimes the family just needs a medication. And he was talking about the antipsychotics. So what's what's your thought there? Is there any role? Because when you read about them, they have black box warning, increased risk of death. How do you think about those? How do you talk to families about those medications? So the antipsychotics uh, that have a number need to harm over six months of about 30 to 50 to cause a death. So those are real harms. Um, are medications that should be used at the lowest dose for the shortest time possible with specific outcomes. So in order to have specific outcomes, you have to define the behavior. Is it verbal agitation, physical agitation? Is it apathy? Is it withdrawal? Is it psychosis? And so you, is it insomnia? So you're trying to describe it so that way you know if it's getting better or not. Um, you still have to make sure that there's no unmet needs, that the person isn't hungry, thirsty, frustrated, bored. They need toileting help, repositioning help, things like that, and that they're on a schedule. So you still have to do all the non-pharmacologic interventions first. And then if you do decide to use a medication, it's absolutely through an informed consent um, because these medications have quantifiable harms and very fuzzy benefits. But if you're at a point where you're thinking about institutionalization, caregiver burnout, or using a medication, then yes, I will use these medications for the shortest duration, lowest dose possible, and just see how things are going. And you know, they're tough medications to use. You always feel like you should give up your geriatric society <laughs> membership card whenever you right. pull out one of these medications. You guys get cards? Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, at some point you do. Now, you ch always try an SSRI first. There was the SIT-AD study, which um, showed that citalopram was beneficial. But when you look at meta-analyses of SSRIs, it's less so. I mean, if you do 500 studies, you know, 20% of them will have a p-value less than 0.05. So even if they're large, well-done studies, at some point, one of these medications will have a positive study. But um, you do try to use SSRIs first. And then again, uh, I will use the medications that I shouldn't. And you're, with, the, with the SSRIs, are you saying if they have independent of mood, like independent of depression or anxiety, just if they have like agitation or difficult behaviors, you might use an SSRI. Because if, right. if someone has actual like psychosis, the antipsychotics, then they, then they, they, there's an actual indication for them, right? Correct. So that's, that's a little different than what we're talking about. If it's just someone's agitated and they don't want to, they don't want to bathe. So you put them on an antipsychotic, that's, you know, that's what you're trying to avoid. To avoid. And I will ask, how long do, do these agitation episodes last? Do they last minutes or hours? And then how much do they escalate? How intense are the episodes? To sort of get me an idea of intensity, it gives me a sense of how close to burnout the caregiver is. Psychiatric symptoms and I think fecal incontinence are the two most predictive things of nursing home placement when it comes to dementia. Uh, so these are serious things to consider. Paul, I think we had time maybe for, for one more question. What else did you want to get into? 
was, and I, I can't remember if we talked about this on air, off air, very early in the episode because my, I'm also having issues with the short term memory. But I think Josh, you mentioned it was important to actually talk to the patients, um, which I, I think <laughs> in prior episodes I've mentioned I do not like doing that, and I, I can't get on board with it. But I, I know that's something that I wanted to hear actually maybe a little bit more about. Maybe you can talk me into it. Yeah, I would say that talking to patients with dementia has forced me to be a better communicator for a variety of reasons, and it's something I actually really enjoy. So if you are the type of physician that just likes communicating facts, that just won't fly with the patient with dementia. So communicating with somebody with dementia, you have to think about what you're saying. You have to think about how you're saying it. You're trying to communicate an emotion. And to a certain extent, you're also communicating with the goal of just letting them know that you are in relationship with them, that you are close to them. And so you have to remember that all three of these things are purposeful. So if I have a patient with agitation, sometimes my main tool is the emotion that I'm communicating, not even what I'm saying. Sometimes it's just my physical presence being there. Sometimes my physical presence makes things worse, in which case I have to leave. But it's important to understand that communication with somebody with dementia has to be very complete. And I think as physicians, we often cheat and we just think it's about the facts that we're communicating. Now, the other thing that you are assessing, though, when you're communicating with a patient with dementia is their mood and their thought content and how they're piecing thoughts together. And because that gives you the flavor of whether there's an affective component or a psychotic component to their dementia. So if I'm talking to somebody with dementia and I'm talking to them and then finally I say, well, do you ever see things people don't see? And they're like, well, yeah, there's snakes in the room. So many times, 10 other physicians have spoken to that patient and never under uncovered that it's dementia with psychosis because they didn't talk to the patient long enough to figure that out. So you have to sort of stew in their milieu of what's going on to get their <laughs> flavor and subtype of what's happening. And it takes time. I mean, it takes 15, 30 minutes of just sitting with them and having conversation. And to a certain extent, you're giving that person the dignity that even though they have dementia, that they are a person worth being with. Paul, I can't wait for you to start stewing in the milieu of Listen, <laughs> I, I love that so much. I make the joke all the time, except it's not a joke, <laughs> that 90% of what I do is just make reassuring noises. Like that's really most of my job. <laughs> and I, I'm thinking of a specific patient. It's, it was the same thing. We're just sort of, I, I very much enjoyed talking with this patient, but had underlying dementia. And it was probably a couple of years in where eventually they just conversationally like, well, then of course there's the demons with the woman's face. And I was like, excuse and like it was just, it was he's been having sort of active auditory and visual hallucinations that I just did not uncover. Though I got there eventually, just by having a relationship and making him feel kind of hurt. I think so. It's I I love that whole point. I mean, let's face it: most physicians treat dementia like they treat rashes. They acknowledge it's there. They want to put a steroid cream on it. And the issue is that <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? Or an antifungal or a combination. But you know. Yes, it's great when a physician even knows that a patient has memory issues. That's fantastic. But at some point, you know, understanding the severity of the dementia, how it's impacting the patient, how it's impacting the family, being able to manage it is probably more important than whether their fifth obtuse marginal has a 60% occlusion. Like <laughs> at some point, these things really matter. And um, again, Dementia to me is like a rash to a dermatologist. Like it's just the starting point and then, you know, I dive in. So this is a perfect spot for you to remind the audience like two or three things that you really want them to remember from what we've talked about today. You know, I would say that both the prevention and treatment of dementia does not depend on medications at this point. From a patient perspective, it's about physical, social, intellectual activity, good sleep. It's about overall good health. Supporting the caregiver matters a lot. And one of the jobs is to take away the stigma and fear and shame of dementia and to demonstrate to the patient and family that this is something that can be acknowledged, that life doesn't end, it can be managed, and you can actually have good years ahead of you even with a diagnosis of dementia. I would say I don't want to make the management of dementia really complicated. I saw one of the readers had or listeners had a question about very complicated multi-point interventions for dementia. And I would keep things really simple. Like I'm a big fan of simplicity. Some, my boss, my previous division chief said that the goal of geriatrics is to manage complexity as simply as possible. So 
I don't order complex tests. I don't put patients on a ton of medications, order imaging. But again, the simple interventions are best. My uncle actually had dementia and he was in California. His wife, my aunt died and his children realized he had dementia. And the neurologist said, you know, keep him in Los Angeles, even though my cousin is in Oregon and we have this specialized cognitive program. Now, taking care of a loved one with dementia out of state is incredibly stressful. And I said to my cousin, there is no cognitive training program that is so special that it's worth trying to manage this out of state. I said, bring your dad close to you. That's going to matter more than anything else. So just really keep it simple and keep your big goals in mind. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Special thanks to our producers for this episode, the one and only Amy Okamoto, and to our social media team, Beth Garbs, Garbatelli on Twitter, Maddie Mad Dog, Morgan on Instagram, Team McCarkinoff website, MJ Allen, Jeff Carter on the transcription team, and Chris the Chew Man Chew, who's still on the Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. And a reminder that you can get CME and mock credit at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. Thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, for making that possible. And a reminder that's free for all healthcare professionals. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Watto. And I've been Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. And we would be remiss if we did not thank the great Stuart Brigham for composing the theme music that you're doubtless hearing behind us. We should also thank the amazing Claire Morgan of Notterly for piecing together our audio. And as always, our main Dr. Paul Nelson Williams, thank you and goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>